This is John Halsman, and welcome to the Around the World in 20 Minutes podcast, where we try to make sense of this beguiling planet. And uh, thank you so much for those of you who are tuning in regularly. And for those of you who are new, this is our little local newspaper for the world. We have five-day coverage now because of the overwhelming support we've received from our community, which is, again, a huge thanks. Uh, Monday, we look at a book serialization. We're doing The Godfather Doctrine, one of my best-selling books and one of my favorites. Um, on Tuesday, we are involved with the culture. We just did a really interesting podcast on Michelangelo Antonioni's La Ventura with the death of Monica Vitti, the luminous Italian actress at the age of 90, looking at what in the world was that all about? What's this art house European cinema about? And why is it easy to make fun of? And why is it also profoundly important? Uh, Wednesday is Around the World in 20 Minutes, where we look at the headlines in the world and dissect them. Thursday is my colleague and great friend, J.L. Ryder, who writes on the society, tackling all those social sacred cows nobody else dares to discuss in a wonderful tone. I love his writing and uh, his rationality in the face of lunacy makes for good reading. And then the Patrick Henry podcast rounds out the week on Friday when we hold the elite, uh, we hold their feet to the fire and see what's happening there. So please do subscribe. And please do give the $70 a year we're asking. I promise you it is well worth the half a cappuccino I now have in front of me. I've decided to take the famous cappuccino and drink it while we're talking, uh, as though we were sitting in some fantastic Italian cafe. So without further ado, uh, one has to say about Ukraine. Well, as a Bond villain, Vladimir Putin certainly has form. Um, the idea that while everyone else is indulging in fantasies, Putin is the only one indulging in realities, and although I certainly hope he fails, he's a disruptive power, he's anti-Western, he certainly can't run an economy, he's a thuggish kleptocrat, he's also a chess-playing realist who understands who is who and what is what. And we're going to start at the end, of, rather than the beginning of our analysis and work our way backward, which is always fun. And one of my favorite moments this week is we saw the three basic Pillars of the old transatlantic alliance go off in entirely different directions. Uh, Emmanuel Macron, desperate to resuscitate Gaulism to make France a great power on the stage once again, jet sets off to see Putin in his uh, Russian presidential lair with the famous 20-foot white table, and they stare at each other again like a specter meeting in James Bond. Number 10, how did narcotics do? I kept waiting for the chair to fall from under Macron. But they had a conversation that Putin said was almost like torture, almost five hours of talks. And coming out of the talks, Macron says he has indeed emerged with peace in our time. Very Neville Chamberlain saying he's been given secret assurances by Putin. And as someone who studied diplomacy his whole life and political risk, let me tell you that secret assurances aren't worth the paper they're printed on, meaning nothing. This was immediately disavowed by Putin, who said he made... Macron, no guarantees. And better still, Putin's uh, press attache, Dmitry Peshkov, who was his foreign affairs spokesman, said something of great interest straight from Putin's mouth, I would imagine, which proves again that Putin is a chess-playing realist and knows who is who and what is what. He said that even if he and France had reached a deal, that deal wouldn't mean anything because the only institution that matters that Putin's worth 
talking to over Ukraine is NATO and France, although an EU member and president of the European Council at the moment, is not the single most important country in NATO. So why in the world would Putin make a deal with a country that simply doesn't matter? His words, not mine, confirming 20 years of my analysis, by the way, that much as France tries to use the EU to leverage the EU to be a great power, substitute the word France for the EU and everything that Macron does makes sound Gaulish sense. The other great powers in the world, the Chinas, uh, the Indias, the Russias, even the Anglosphere allies looking at this are aware that the EU has an inflated sense of its own importance and the deals can't be struck by there because the EU does not have a military, is economically sclerotic, and is hopelessly divided. And Peskov, through Putin, made this argument that, you know, yes, he'll meet with Macron, that France plays in NATO, but it isn't the country that really matters because NATO matters because the United States backstops it, not France. So while Macron was jetting off for a agreement he reached only with himself, it seems. At the same time, the other great European power, Germany, went to meet with Joe Biden to show that all was well with the alliance. And in front of numerous people at a press conference, Biden said the logical thing, that if they're that to change Putin's calculations, there have to be carrots and sticks, that you have to talk Putin off the ledge, and I, I agree with this, and show him what he gets if he refrains from pressing and invading Ukraine which isn't in his interest anyway, the first thing you can say is that no Western power wants Ukraine within the alliance anyway right now. The United States doesn't, and on record since 2009, France, Germany, and Italy do not. And because NATO only accepts members unanimously, they aren't going to join any time in Putin's lifetime. Ukraine is not defensible, which is a factor. Ukraine has outstanding border disputes. In written into the NATO treaty, you do not take in members with outstanding border disputes. Obviously, eastern Ukraine is a festering sore of border disputes. That Ukraine has tremendous corruption problems, tremendous rule of law problems, tremendous democratic problems. So for all these reasons, it's not about to join NATO and any one of these countries will veto it. It's not on the agenda, nor will it be on the agenda. So if Putin refrains from arguing theoretically that NATO shouldn't have an open door policy and no, we're not going to let him dictate that reality, there's an awful lot he can gain. And foremost among the things he can gain would be the completion of the Nord Stream 2 pipeline which I and any sensible realist have been strongly against because it merely confirms and doubles European, Europe's energy dependency. It's like giving a heroin addict a new supply and the same old supplier. You double the supply and Gazprom and Putin are the same old supplier, making Europe even more neutralist, even less likely to mess with the Russian bear. But he will get that if he refrains from invading Ukraine. But on the other hand, if he does invade Ukraine, Biden says, sensibly enough, Nord Stream 2 will be off the table. And then they turn it over to the German chancellor, the new chancellor, Olaf Scholz, who was a prisoner of his own SPDE party and his old Ostpolitik thinking. Truly in Germany, there are people, and I lived there for many years, who believe that Brand sidling up with the Soviets somehow won the Cold War. It doesn't make sense, but emotionally it is potent on the German left that somehow sidling up and appeasing Moscow helped win the Cold War, when, of course, Ronald Reagan helped win the Cold War, along with Harry Truman and Jack Kennedy. But rather than deal with that reality, the left of the German world believes that getting closer to Moscow somehow 
keeps the peace rather than appeasing them. Um, when pressed after Biden said Nord Stream 2, of course, would be off the table if Putin invades, Schultz almost swallowed his tongue, turned colors, hemmed and hawed, and eventually said platitudes amounting to absolutely nothing, that yes, Germany, of course, would be with America, and of course, we would be tough on the Russians, but he refused, even when offered to do so, to say the magic words that Nord Stream 2 is off the table for the simple reason that it's not. And for 20 years, all of us in political risk with a brain the size of a pea have told the Germans and Europe to diversify its energy supply. I played a war game to this extent for various European organizations showing that all we're asking is diversification of supply. Yes, some of it to American shale, but also to Qatar, also to Norway, and, and of course then to Russia. But if you make every one of those a quarter, we can then deal with the supply if Russia does indeed turn menacing. As it is, everyone is scrambling around Qatar in the United States to save Europe from its own fecklessness, its useless, ridiculous energy policy, which has further encouraged Schultz in his left-leaning German neutralism. So we see a number of things coming out of this week. We see, first of all, Putin doing what Putin does as a good Bond villain realist, um, he's not an ethical realist as I am, but he's a Machiavellian realist and a wrecking power, and he sees disunity in front of him. He sees a chance to further divide the NATO alliance by continuing to have four-hour marathon conversations with Putin. There's not enough Russian Chardonnay in the world that can make this work, and even Putin said it was a form of torture, but in doing so, he disrupts the alliance by playing to the fantasies of French grandeur. At the same time, he plays to the fantasies of German neutralism, and we can see this by his control over the practical notion of an energy policy to the point that Schultz is standing next to Biden in Washington at a press conference and will simply not say the words, it's not clever, the strategic ambiguity. It's craven appeasement, and it merely encourages Putin. Because a divided West is far more likely to make Putin cross the line in Ukraine when he knows that he will not pay a penalty, that maybe Germany won't get rid of Nord Stream 2, but will quietly shelve the project until after the invasion, and then we'll come back to Russia in a couple years and all will be well. Also by encouraging France to throw its weight around in NATO, to go off the reservation, to promise and offer things that haven't been cleared at NATO with the other allies like Germany, Britain, Italy, and the United States, Putin can sow dissension within NATO, which is part of what he's been doing since he was a KGB officer in East Germany. And he has form. He's good at it. And so into this disunion, Putin is strengthened. And because of this disunion, ironically, we are actually making invasion far more likely. Because if the West presented itself with, with a cost-benefit analysis for a very rational Russian leader, the odds of an invasion would go down, meaning if you don't invade, we could talk about any matter of security issues we like. Western and particularly European investment will flow to you, which you want. Nord Stream 2, which will be completed, although I personally think this is a horrible idea. Putin would strongly favor this. Europe's ever more in Russia's energy pocket, ever more neutralist, which you like. And you achieve all this merely by not invading. No one is going to have Ukraine in in the first place. And so ostensibly, we're arguing about a theory. NATO's open door policy we're not going to give way on the theory, but if you accept the practice that it won't join, you get all this on side. 
It's only when the message gets muddied by vainglorious do-gooders like Macron and his failed busted flush Gaulism and German delusions that somehow neutralism is anything other than gutlessness. This means war is more likely, paradoxically, because Putin will pay a smaller price. And if you're doing a cost-benefit analysis, this would seem to me to be a fundamental importance. So from Putin's point of view, this is this is catnip. This is wonderful. And he's merely sowing the seeds of division that are already there. He's not creating the division, but he's making the divisions much more likely. And let me be clear. I've been saying that there's been division now for a long time. This merely confirms what's happening in Ukraine, my political risk analysis of the post-Cold War era, the last 20 years, and certainly the last couple, that I have seen this rightly and my competitors have not. While they believe in the platitudes of unity, they don't see a world that is fundamentally changed. There are two superpowers, the United States and China, that are in endemic competition moving forward. On the same hand, beneath this, there are a number of great powers with a lot of room to maneuver. These include Russia, the EU, India, Japan, and the Anglosphere countries. But the West is divided. At the moment, the United States has more allies in, than China, and this should be fundamental in our approach forward as to how to deal with things. We want to have more allies, and we need to have more allies to maintain the world that we live in, which is a Western and American-dominated world. A great advantage we have over the Chinese is that we have a strong alliance system in the new era with Japan, an ever stronger one with India, a rock-solid alliance with the Anglosphere countries, and we must do everything in our power to keep Russia from drifting into the arms of China. That's another thing we should be doing all the time. But the EU is no longer an American ally in an ironclad, lockstep way as it was throughout the Cold War. This is neither good nor bad. It is merely a fact. Realism is about looking at the world as it is, warts and all, as Edmund Burke said, and then trying to make it better. And that's what we're doing here. From an American perspective, stop counting on Chancellor Schultz to back you up at press conferences. Stop count counting on Emmanuel Macron to stay on peace when he's likely to go off on his own to try to make something happen to make Europe a superpower. It simply isn't, rather than the politically divided, endemically, as we see even by France and Germany this week, economic, sclerotic, utterly militarily impotent force that it is. It is a great power, but the least of the great powers. And it is not pro-American, as it's being proven. When the rubber hits the road, it's neutralist. Yes, it is not in the camp of the Chinese, and we must do everything we can to cherry-pick Europe, to work with the Europeans in Eastern Europe, in Northern Europe, and even the Italian government of Mario Draghi that support us. The Northern Europeans, the Scandinavians are rock-solid with us in NATO. The Eastern Europeans are lockstep with us. The Italians are Atlanticist and bent at the moment. There's a lot to work with here. I'm not saying walk away. Be internationalist but cherry-pick a divided Europe as Putin is doing. Stop thinking that it's unified and stop thinking that it's inherently pro-American because Vladimir Putin has pointed out it simply is not. And so seeing things as they are is good. The United States starts out with very strong cards in the new era. It has India on side increasingly. It has Japan lockstep. It has the Anglosphere lockstep among the great powers Russia, for all the talk in the last week about an alliance with China, isn't there yet. It doesn't want to be Robin to China's Batman, as we've talked about. And it certainly has problems over who's dominant in Central Asia and even Siberia. So it doesn't line up perfectly. It tilts toward China, 
but it is not in lockstep with China. Just as the EU tilts toward the United States, but can no longer be considered to be in lockstep with America. And certainly the reality of this first great crisis of the 2020s over Ukraine shows this. Not, let's not let Vladimir Putin to be the only one to see the world as it really is. Let's prove that in democracies we can be realists, albeit ethical realists, and we too can have form in seeing the world as it actually is. Thank you very much. Hope you enjoyed that. It was great to do that and see that again the United West that we've all talked about throughout time doesn't exist anymore. This isn't cause for lamentation. It's cause to gather what can be saved and to work with those allies like the Anglosphere, India, and Japan. In Asia, the region of the world increasingly of importance, where all the risk and all the reward are going forward. Let's not be deterred by Ukraine, which is important, but secondary, and is certainly not something to go to war for. Saying all that, let's look at Europe as it is and say, you want more control, Mr. Macron? Then do something because we're going to give it to you. We have other to fish to fry. Good luck dealing with Russia. We will support you, we will help, but we are not taking the lead anymore. You have an economy that when you add it together is the size roughly of the United States, slightly smaller, but in the ballpark. Now you keep talking about how strong Europe's going to be and Europe's going to do its homework. Well, history will either manage you or you will manage history. Good luck with that as we pivot to Asia. Thanks very much for listening. Hope you enjoyed this. On to my cappuccino. For those of you who haven't, please do subscribe. We value very much the overwhelming response we've had to the podcast and to making ourselves into a little local newspaper to the world. Thank you so much for that. But to do that, we need $70 a year, $7 a month, or the price of half of one of these cappuccinos I'm about to dive into. $70 a year, and we will keep giving you this provocative, cutting-edge, entirely politically risk on the money Unlike all the cheerleaders on the left and in Europe, we're seeing things as they are, and Ukraine merely confirms that we're right. So stick with us, and we'll keep being right and keep having fun together. Thanks very much.